This morning's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. We're concluding uh, our series on the hard, hard sayings of Jesus uh, today. And, um, you know, what are the hard sayings? It's because, uh, on one hand, the hard sayings, these sayings of Jesus are difficult to understand, um, difficult to, to make sense of, but at the same time, these hard sayings, they're hard to accept. Uh, we need to chew on them. We need to digest them. And when we do, then we're going to be able to experience the richness and the fullness of everything that we're hearing. And this passage, it really focuses on the death of Christ, what it means. It's a famous passage, actually. It's a conversation between three dying men, and each of them are saying something. And what they say helps us to understand why Jesus died and why that death, why his death is actually important. So three points, very simple. Three points, Three men, they're all dying. The first dying man, the second dying man, and the third dying man. Very simple, right? First dying man, the second dying man, and the third dying man. The first dying man. In verse 39, he says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's what he says. And it teaches us, really, why it's so easy to not get Jesus. To just completely overlook the gospel. Um, In verse 35 to 36, you have two types of people. Verse 35, you have the rulers, it says. These are the religious people. And they say, let's see if he really is a chosen one. Let's see if he really is the Messiah. Because if he is, save yourself. And then you have in verse 36, you have the soldiers. And the soldiers, these are the Roman soldiers. They're the irreligious people. They say, if you're really the king of Israel, if you're really the king of the Jews... Save yourself. So you have the religious people who tell Jesus, save yourself. If you have, then you have the irreligious people who look at Jesus and they say, save yourself. Very rarely, typically, the religious and the irreligious are usually at odds. They're in disagreement. Typically, you have the, the religious and the irreligious, they don't agree. The rulers and the soldiers, the religious and the irreligious, they, they usually disagree, but here they're in absolute agreement. They're in agreement. They're saying the same thing. And what they're saying is this, that the chosen one, 
the person who's supposed to be this king, he would never suffer like this. A true king would never suffer like this. No one ever believed that Jesus, that the Son of God, that the Messiah, the Chosen One, that the King would actually appear weak. They, didn't, they never thought to associate, you know, Jesus or their Savior as uh, someone who would be the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. It's written in your call to worship. They never, they never thought to bring those two people together, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and Jesus. And that tells you here, you know, the cross, it, ex- it assumes an exclusivity, you know, because of the holiness of God. The cross assumes an exclusivity. It's something that the liberal people, the secular people, these Romans, these soldiers, they just can't handle that. But it also assumes an inclusivity to God. Here's Jesus. He's on the cross. He's hanging. He's dying on the cross. So what is he saying? He's inviting the sinner this person who's committed a crime, into heaven with him. And that's something that, you know, the religious people and the rulers, the, re- the religious teachers, they just absolutely cannot handle that. Most of us, we toggle back and forth between the two, between one and the other. We struggle with either the holiness of God or the love of God. We struggle with the justice of God and we struggle with the mercy of God. We struggle with the exclusivity of Jesus and the inclusivity of Jesus. And as a result, we miss him. We don't get him. We miss Jesus altogether. But the, but the second reason why we have a hard time, we overlook who Jesus really is, is because Jesus simply fails to meet up to, the, to our biggest test of what a true savior or a king would be. He fails to live up to that. Verse 39, remember, this, is, this criminal, he says, if you're, the, if you're Christ, if you really are who, who you say you are, Get me out. In other words, I have needs. I'm praying to you right now. I have needs. Fulfill my needs. We've all done that before. If you're really God, then show me by answering my prayers. And if God really is who he says he is, if he really is a God of love, then if I pray to him, he would really answer me. He will fulfill my needs. In other words, if you get me out of this mess, this is what the first criminal is saying, if you get me out of my mess, if you help me to escape, then I'll believe. If you don't get me out of this mess, it's because you must not exist. In other words, I don't see a reason for my suffering, and as a result, I can't believe. I have a hard time believing, or I won't believe. Now, is that really good logic? Is it really good logic to say, if I don't see a good reason for my suffering, then a good reason must not exist? Or if I can't explain my suffering, then a God who actually can explain my suffering must not exist? Is that really good logic? Think about this. When we come to God, we say, here's how I know you exist. Here's how I know you're God. I have a view of how my life should be. And if you help me, then you must be God. Is that really good logic? Is that better logic? Because you don't really want God then. What you really want is an employee. You really want somebody that you can negotiate with. And a God, you know, a, a God who bows to your desires, a God who's willing to negotiate with you, and at the same time isn't allowed to challenge you, cannot be God. That kind of God cannot exist. That's why it's so easy to not get it. It's easy to not get it because of the exclusivity and the inclusivity of Jesus but also because we want a God who, fills, who fulfills our needs, all of our desires. And that's the first dying man. Now, the second dying man teaches us how you actually get it, what you actually get, how you actually get it. Um, how do you actually understand and come to know Jesus? The second man, 
he hears the crowd. He hears the first criminal on the other side. And he says two things. And both of these things um, show us the difference between God as a means to an escape and God as the escape. Both men, think about this, both men, they're in the same situation. They're on the cross. They're being humiliated. They're dying. They have the same felt pain. All three of them, right, actually, right? But these two criminals, they have the same felt, felt pain. They have the same felt needs. The first one, he's just like the crowd. But this other one, he's completely different. Both of them are turning to God. Both of them are speaking to God. But only one of them sees God for who he is. We all start out like the first one. If God were truly God, he would fulfill my prayers. He would answer to my needs. But what we need is to shift over to the second person, the second criminal. Now, what is it about what the second person says that's so important? Verse 40 to 42, this is what he says. He says, do you not fear God? He's talking to the other criminal. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, he says, we deserve this, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's verses 40 to 42. The first person, the first criminal, he says to Jesus, get me out of my mess. Save yourself and us. But the second person, he never asks to get out of the trouble, if you notice. In fact, he says, we deserve it. This is just. He, gets, he understands justice. There's no justification. He's not justifying himself. He's not blaming somebody else. He's not making excuses. You know, his life is on the line. He is dying. And yet, he doesn't ask to get out of the mess. The first person says, Jesus, I will stay with you if you help me get out of my trouble. But the second criminal says, I will stay with the trouble if you help me stay with you, if you help me be with you, if you help me get you. The first criminal says, you know, Jesus is the negotiable one. Getting out of you know, my escape, getting out of trouble, that's non-negotiable. But the second criminal says, getting out of trouble, the escape is negotiable. But getting Jesus, that is not, that's my non-negotiable. That's, you know, what, what this means is that your functional God, your functional God is whatever you deem is non-negotiable in your life. Everybody comes to church to seek God, but your true God is the one thing that you're not willing to negotiate in your life. Think about this. If money or power or popularity or your family, you know, your children, your relationships, or that one relationship, if those things are at the center of all the things that motivate you, all the things that inspire you, then God is the negotiable thing in your life. God is the negotiable relationship. God is the negotiable entity in your life. Just like the first thief, he, he, he just wants to escape. God is negotiable. But if you're starting to wake up, then you can see beyond your circumstances, you can see beyond your situation, you can see beyond your context. And when you start to do that, you start to see that there are actually weights tied to your ankles that are dragging you down in the sea. 
You're trying to tread water. You're fighting violently to tread water, but there are actually weights on your ankles dragging you down. When you start to wake up, you start to see that. You know, uh, just like in uh, Michael Lewis, if you've ever seen the movie Moneyball or if you read the book, uh, one of the first uh, quotes that he quotes in the book Moneyball, he says this, and he quotes John Ruskin from his book Unto the Last. Lately in a wreck of a Californian ship, one of the passengers fastened a belt around him with 200 pounds of gold in it, with which he was found afterwards at the bottom. Now, as he was sinking, had he the gold or the gold him. In other words, stop praying for riches. Stop praying for security. Rather, you know, that's the weight around your ankles dragging you down and you're violently trying to tread water. Rather, pray for the, the one security that goes so deeply in your life that it's going to free you from the grip of money free you from your salary, free you from, from looking at other people and judging them based on what they do, or your own, judging yourself based on what you do for that matter, or, or, or your career. Stop, you know, stop praying for a particular relationship in your life, you know, because you're praying for love, and you're, and you're praying for love as a means to worth in your life. That's the weight around your ankle, and it's dragging you down. Instead, what you need to do is you need to pray for the one experience of love that's going to really stand when this entire world ends, when all, you know, goes down. The one love that's going to last. Because if you don't do that, the Bible here teaches us that you could lose yourself in any one of those things. You could lose yourself in all of those things. And Jesus becomes the one negotiable thing, the one thing that you need, the one thing that you need. The religious people, they overlooked it. The irreligious people, they overlooked it. And they're thinking the same way. You know, the second thief, he does something that's only possible if God's actually working in your life. So if you're even remotely thinking, you know, I have these weights around my ankles and it's dragging me down. And I'm that guy. I'm the one that's treading water. I I live life like I'm treading water just to stay afloat. I'm that guy. That's an admission. That's something that only God himself, if he's working in your life, that you could come to. Remember who he is, you know, this thief. He's on the cross, and he's not your typical thief. This is most likely an insurrectionist. Romans only crucified people who were rebelling against the country, against the empire. So this person was probably committing some treasonous act. And this man, he could have easily justified himself. His view of himself could have been that he's a martyr. He could have blamed the government around him, the people around him, but no. This second thief... He says, it's Jesus who's innocent. We're getting what we deserve. That's what he says. Knowing Jesus, seeing Jesus, it changed his view of even right and wrong. It changed his view of justice. Now, lots of people say, no, this is why I hate religion. It makes, religion has a way of making you feel bad about yourself, and that's why I don't like going to church. No way. No way. You know, religious people, one thing about religious people, I know because I'm a recovering Pharisee. I know what it means to be religious. Religious people, they avoid feeling bad about themselves all their lives. That's why it's so easy to miss Jesus. We avoid feeling bad about ourselves. So this man, he's really completely different from a religious person. Religious people, they say, look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've sacrificed. I deserve so much more than what I'm experiencing right now, so much more than my suffering. So if you're really, you know, 
Um, if you really are God, you owe me because look what I've done for you. You owe me. That's how religious people, you know, they may not say that, you know, but in their heart, if you see it in their disappointment, you see it in their, in their judging of other people, you see them in their anger and in their pride, in their own selfishness. Especially when things go wrong, you know, they cry, if you're really here, you would rescue me because I'm good. I'm the good one. You would rescue me. And that shows us that whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you grew up in the church or this is the first time at church, we all ultimately respond the same way. Both of us, both sides, use Jesus. Both sides think that they can negotiate with Jesus. They say, save yourself and us. If you're really who you say you are, answer me. Both sides try to save themselves. Both sides want escape. Both sides act entitled. Both religious and irreligious try to be their own king. We're desperate for control of our own lives. Do you see that? But not this man. Not this man. He admits who he is. Verse 42, you know, it's a plea. It's a prayer, but it's a plea. He says, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's what he says. It's a plea. How much faith do you need in life? You know, we think the problem is, you know, we don't have enough faith. We don't have enough prayer. We don't, we don't know the word enough. But how much, faith, how much faith did this man have on the cross as he was dying? That was probably the first prayer he ever prayed. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me. You know, he says, Jesus, remember me, meaning don't forget my sins. Forget my sins, Jesus. Remember me. Embrace me. Will you take me in? He knows that Jesus, he knows the kingdom, you know, that Jesus is headed to the kingdom. He says, will you take me in? What happens when you pray that prayer? You know what happens when you pray that prayer? Here's the third dying man. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Truly, today you will be with me in paradise. That's verse 43. Now, uh, in your translations, it says, truly, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. Other translations, it will say, you know, I, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. In other translations, it will say, truly, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. In other translations, it will say, verily, verily, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise today. Um, Really what he's saying, the word translated is amen. Amen. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now I need to explain that. In the old days, when you were a teacher, you were a rabbi and you were teaching people, the elders would sit or stand around you up front And they would nod as they hear you teach. And if what you're teaching makes sense to them and if it's deemed as truth, they would all respond and say, "Mm, Amen. You hear that sometimes in in traditional churches. They hear what the preacher says and they say, "Mm, Amen. It's their way of saying, I've thought about what you said. I'm analyzing what you're saying. It's very consistent. It makes sense. I validate you as saying something that is truthful. But Jesus here, you know, this is why they wanted to kill Jesus. This is why the rulers hated Jesus. Because Jesus often took that ability and that right of, for us to validate him away from him, from us. He would start out by saying, amen. He doesn't give you the opportunity to validate. In other words, what he's saying is, I have authority. The root word is author. 
I am the author. So what he's saying is, I tell you truth. I don't care whether you deem it as truth, whether you believe me or not. I'm telling you truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, he's not, he's, Jesus, you know what that means? On the cross, he's dying and he's suffering and yet he's still teaching. He's still teaching down to the very last end. But the thing is, he's not just teaching. Jesus didn't just come to become a religious leader or, or a religious teacher. He says, truly, truly, amen and amen. It's that doublet. Whenever you see that doublet in the Bible, there's emotional content, which means he's weeping and he's crying and he's moved by this person. And as he's moved by this person, he's saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what does that mean? This is the hard saying. What does that mean? People tend to focus on the word today. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And, they, and that becomes this evangelistic push in a lot of sermons. Some people focus on the word paradise. It's also an evangelistic push. Today, you will be with him in paradise. But really, the crux of this text, Jesus, you know, you have to, Jesus, he's fulfilling a mission that has been set forth from the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world. He's not trying to sentimentalize his death. He's not, you know, he's saying, oh, you know, today you will be with me. That's not what he's doing here. He's suffering, he's dying, and he's fulfilling what he has promised from before, the begin- from before time began. And so he's not sentimentalizing death. He's dying, and these are the last words that are going to come out of his mouth. And up until this point, every word that he's ever uttered in Scripture has been said intentionally. And the center of this promise is what? You will be with me. That's what he's saying. You will be with me. Why is he saying that? In John chapter 17, part of that is, I think, written in the word of encouragement in your bulletins today. In John chapter 17... Jesus is praying this high priestly prayer. He's acting as the priest, and he's pleading for his people, all believers. He's pleading for the church. I'm going to read this portion of John chapter 17, verses 20 to 24. This is Jesus preparing to die, praying to the Father. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you The Father are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. And here's the crux. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, what does he mean by this? He's saying, I want, Father, I want them to be with me. I want them to be with me where I am. He's saying, Father, I want you to love them just as you love me. He's saying, Father, I have glory. I want them to have it. I have your love. I want them to have it. What's it going to take? I have peace with all that's going around me. I have peace. 
but I want them to have it. What's it going to take? You know, I have the inheritance and the joy of that inheritance, but I want them to have it. What's it going to take? I have victory. I have richness. I have eternity. I am your son, but I want them to be sons. What's it going to take? I have a perfect relationship with you. How many times did you see I in you? You know, I in them. You in me. I want them to have it. Perfect relationship. I have the sweetness of being one in you. I want them to have it. What's it going to take? What's it going to take? And then in verse 24, he says, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. What does he mean by that? At the crux of this, what he's saying is, he's not talking about geography. He's not talking about a, mo- a location. He's not talking about escape. He's, not, he's, ta- he's talking about position. He's not talking about geography. He's talking about position. He's talking about you having a place with the Father. Christianity is not an escape from reality. It's not an opiate for the people. It's a renewed reality altogether. It's, a, it's true reality. It's true reality altogether. How do you get it? On the cross, Jesus cries out. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, how am I going to have you with them? How am I going to bring my people to the Father? I have to be forsaken. What he's saying when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am not with you any longer. I am rejected. I am cut off. I am in hell. What is hell? Hell is complete separation between God and man. That's hell. So that means on the cross, Jesus is suffering hell. In Isaiah 53, it says that he was cut off from the land of the living. Completely cut off. Why? Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus was disowned so that we could be owned, so that we could belong to the Father. Jesus was cut off by the Father so that we could be engrafted to the Father. Jesus was without the Father so that we could be with him. So that we could be with him. The cross is where the holiness of God and the love of God meet. The cross is where the justice of God and the mercy of God embrace. The cross is where the exclusivity of God, because of his holiness, kisses the inclusivity of God because of his love, because of his grace. Do you see that? Jesus is suffering. He's dying. He's barely able to utter any word because he's suffocating to death on the cross. And he turns and says to the criminal, I'm going to die soon. And after I die, I'm going to be glorified. Whether or not you die today, you will have a place with me. That's a promise. Today, in this moment, that's possible. In God's embrace, that's possible. What does that do for your confidence? What do you think it does for the person dying on the cross who's got no, other, no escape? What would it do for his self-image when everyone is hurling insults and jeering at him? What does it do for your sense of worth when you realize that before your own country, you are absolutely worthless? What does it do? 
Will you let that be your glory too? You know, this man, he wasn't praying for money. That's not why he came to Jesus, because he had none. He wasn't praying for for good health because he was dying. He wasn't praying for the approval of the people around him. They were insulting him. He had none. This second man, his confidence would be in one thing, and that's that he would be remembered by God, that he was known. What about you? What is your confidence? What is your life? What is the sum that makes up your joy? Stop trying to get God's attention, you know, with your accomplishments, because that's what we're doing. You know, as all the psychologists and philosophers say, and by the time you enter into the realm of philosophy, you've abandoned science pretty much altogether. And when you're doing that, you know, you're saying that the reason why we work so hard, the reason why we, we try to look good is what? We still, that attention that we seek from our, from our employers, from our spouses, that attention that we seek from that one person that, that, that we really want love from, it's a spiritual thing. It's because deep inside, we know that we are empty without God. This is why we're so frustrated when we don't get that, that love that we need. We're like the first criminal, you know. Save yourself and us. Save me. Help me to escape. Look at the second criminal. It doesn't matter. Up to today, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how much of a failure you've lived your life in this past week. It doesn't matter what crimes you've committed, whether they're overt or covert. You can be with him. That's a promise. Do you trust it? And by trusting it, have you planted that into the deepest part of your soul? Because then you'll change. That's what creates change the love and the mercy and the grace of God. Let's pray.